Um, hello, everybody. Sorry for the delayed start. Um, the reason for that is that um, there are some images from a couple of the projects we're going to be talking about in this session that we were uh, very keen to show you, just to uh, illustrate um, them. Um, so we wanted to do that before we got started, but we can get started now. Um, so we were, I'm, I'm Andrew Eaton-Lewis, I'm the Arts Lead of the Mental Health Foundation. Um, we were kind of talking amongst ourselves about how to start um, a discussion like this, and I suppose there's an observation that we could make, which is that everybody in this room has one thing in common, um, which is that we're, we're all going to die. <laughs> and that's an uncomfortable thing to throw out, obviously. Um, it's an uncomfortable thing to talk about, it's a difficult thing to talk about, but um, we, I suppose what we want to explore in this next hour is whether there are ways to make that uh, idea more comfortable and, and, and better to talk about. Um, so uh, I have uh, three fine speakers with me. Um, I'll introduce them. Uh, Julie Cameron um, works with me at, at the Mental Health Foundation. Um, one of the, there's kind of a, an evolving idea and, and a program that we are hoping to run at the Mental Health Foundation about the idea of living well and dying well. And um, we are in a dialogue with um, Marie Curie uh, Cancer Care about that. And I was going to, uh, in a moment, um, get Julie to talk about that. Um, uh, but one of the things we obviously are very keen to do at the Mental Health Foundation is, is to use the arts to talk about mental health and to use the arts to talk about all kinds of um, uh, challenging, uh, difficult issues. And um, I also have with me today um, two people who are doing exactly that. Um, Angie Dyke is... Um, <laughs> um, Angie Dyke is uh, artistic director of uh, a company called Mischief Labat, or Mischief Labat sometimes. Um, Mischief Labat, um, who I asked along here today to talk um, about the process that led up to um, one of um, the company's um, current projects, which is Festival of Ian Smith, uh, a, cele a celebration of death, yes. uh, which has been going for the past couple of years in tribute to Angie's late husband. And I'll ask Angie to talk about how that came about. Um, we also have uh, Stephanie over here, uh, who is a, a theatre producer, um, uh, who we're actually maybe working with at this year's Mental Health Festival on, on another project uh, called Shrimp Dance, but the, the project I've asked Stephanie to come along and talk about it's called Afterwards. Afterwords? Is that the Afterwards, word? Afterwards. Yeah. Afterwards. <laughs> um, which... With an O. Yeah. <laughs> a short version is that it's um, about the way that social media has, um, uh, has perhaps changed the way we talk about death, and, and, or, or, the, or the role that social media plays in, in talking about death and, 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 and the grieving process. Is that... Yeah, yeah, def <laughs> yeah okay. definitely. It's... Uh, the, the role that technology now plays in the grieving ritual and the mourning ritual and what our knowledge of someone is um, or how we deal and communicate now that social media is such a large part of our lives and just explore what that's all about really. So we'll have some images from, oh this is, in fact this is Ian Smith. Yeah. Um, so we'll have some images from the festival of Ian Smith and we've also got some images from afterwards which is a, kind of a work in progress at the moment, it's not quite a final yeah. production yet but yeah. um, is it in, in development. But let's, let's start with, with, with Julie. Um, yeah, but, uh, tell us about the Mental Health Foundation's sort of thinking on, on this subject. Okay. So, as Andrew said, some of this is about um, a programme that we haven't started yet, but we're in, we've had some discussions with Marie Curie about this whole concept of living well and dying well. Um, and I guess on the back of that, as a public health organisation who um, are trying to tackle inequalities, I guess some of my observations about um, how as a society... Um, how we talk and discuss and the discourse that we have around death and I guess 
when I was planning for this session and, I was, and also some of the conversations that we've had with Marie Curie, I was kind of thinking through what to me are some of the, the kind of key issues around this and why certainly we are increasingly thinking that it's important for us to, to open up opportunities for people to think about death. Um, and I guess the first thing is about, for me, one of the ways that, um, I guess there's two things for me about how I respond to death on a personal level as well as within in, in um, a professional context. And first is about quite often how I respond to a death is often a reflection of what the quality of life has been prior to someone's died. Um, and I think in the context of that Marie Curie discussion that we've been having there very much in terms of that around palliative care and end of life care and clearly that's really important. But I think for us and for me as an individual it's beyond that, it does go beyond that and actually it starts to take us into well, what's the quality of life of that person being when they were living prior to them perhaps knowing that they were dying and to me that shines quite a spotlight on inequalities and actually that's a, a big aspect around death, around people um, don't have, I, th I think how I respond to death is quite often thinking through well, well what life did that person have, how much happiness, how much love, how much you know, laughter did they have in their life and whether we like, what we know is that that's not equal in our society how much um, people, different people have in that. And, and a lot of, some of the inequalities that I think death shines a particular spotlight on, I think there's, around mental health, there's, there's particular statistics that are incredibly shocking, that we know that if somebody has a long-term or enduring mental health condition, that they will live 15 to 20 years less long than somebody who doesn't. That's shocking, that's something that um, death shines a spotlight on quite clearly. Poverty, we know that people who live in poverty um, have have a lower quality of life um, and are less happy and I think death can, again, the, the whole discussion around death and about the quality of a person's life shines a spotlight on it. So there's something about that quality of life is important and I think encouraging discussion on death shines a spotlight on that. The second thing that I think for us has been something that we've been getting our heads around is, as the type of organisation that we are with, it, as the Mental Health Foundation is, um, I guess traumatic death, um, traumatic death in, in its broadest sense and that would obviously incorporate um, when somebody has completed suicide um, and again that clearly has an inequalities aspect to it as well. We know that um, suicide rates are much higher in areas of deprivation and when people have multiple, um, multiple experiences of um, inequality. So there's something about that but I think the whole concept of trauma I was really thinking about this recently about um, how the discourse about death and trauma has become quite an interesting one. In some ways within our society we've become better at talking about that, particularly particularly in response to kind of national trauma. So when there's a kind of national trauma or a national event that takes place where death is part of that, um, Actually, as a society, we're getting better at kind of recognising that people need support and, and those that are left behind need significant support. What we're much, much poorer at is when that trauma is on a personal level. So if you um, are the partner or a family member of somebody who has completed suicide or if you're a partner or a family member of somebody who death they've experienced death that's kind of outworth the, nat the natural life course that we would want people to have. So a child's died or a, a parent's died when you're very young, something like that. So there's something for us as an organisation, I guess, and there's something for me about encouraging the discussion about death in that really broad sense, um, which does shine a spotlight on inequalities, because I think death 
harnesses um, just shows that quite sharply. And I think there is also something about just as a society how much how distant we are from um, this concept of, I mean, what you said at the beginning to me is quite important that mm. we all are going to die, but actually people do really struggle mm. with discussing it and knowing what to say on that individual level, even though we probably are getting better at recognising that people need support after um, a bereavement. But on an individual level, I think people still really struggle on how to react with somebody who is going through grief and going through bereavement. And these are all the reasons I think we're quite interested in this as a, as a public health organisation and a public mental health organisation. Yeah. Angie, the way this leads me, me to you, obviously you are someone who's been through grief and a very traumatic situation um, three years ago. Um, tell me about you. Okay, so um, my husband uh, did uh, suffer from really severe uh, depression and he died by suicide in 2014 and that was really my first experience of, of dealing with death closely and uh, he'd been he had been really ill for four years before that time and I think there was uh, just felt a real need to celebrate him uh, celebrate his life really um, because I'd had a friend who'd uh, also died by suicide the year before and there had been a Facebook page set up and the Facebook page was really quite well it was it was good but it had some negative things said about it and so it was really I was really like I really need to uh, because I, we have two children now like 17 and 19 at the time and it's like you need to be giving other people this uh, this feeling that well, you don't want them to be like, oh, look what he did, or look at you. It's like so important to like um, commemorate the person, celebrate the person, have a positive view of a person in death, particularly for my kids' sake, for our friend's sake, for his sake, because in the time of being that ill, he didn't, he had no self-worth. And he didn't believe in all the great things that he'd done, all the, all the work that he'd made. He just didn't believe in himself. And it's like, it's so important to bring this person back to who they used to be for the sake of his friends, his family, his kids, everyone. So, so that was my first experience. And then, and then it was about, well, how do you make a funeral? What do you do? I had no idea. I'd never I'd made a funeral before. I never had taken any part in that. The lady at the funeral place, she said, oh, you can do what you like, do what you like. And it was like, right, okay. So that's what we did. And that is Ian's coffin. And I don't know if there's another picture of it, but it's, um, I, I might have put it in the longer one, but um, oh, that's, yeah. that's the rest of it. Um, so some friends uh, painted the, the coffin and there were feet sticking out of the end and we had an uh, amazing uh, car and everyone dressed up brightly and we had um, a life-size cake because Ian had always said, when I die, I, uh, I want to be eaten because in the old days he had made a show about cannibalism. So, uh, so my daughter was like, right, I'm going to make a cake. So with her friends, they made this big cake of him and... So, you know, so we had done it. We did eat him. And uh, uh, we had, like, mischief. We do, like, uh, street, street performance. So mischief people came and dressed up as uh, the 
uh, Elvis Cleaning Company and all the guys dressed up as Tom Jones Fan Club and it was, it was just silly and lots of people performed and uh, it, it was like it was a big party really and we had a Bowie tribute band because he was really into Bowie and my kids like sang and performed at that but the thing that was really clear to me was uh, well, I had said to my daughter at the start, we just need to remember Dad how he was. And she was like, I can't even remember that. But as soon as, on Facebook, as soon as everybody started to upload pictures and say all this good stuff, then everybody, then she was like, oh, well, we're all like, yeah, we can remember him, how he used to be. And so the funeral and everything about that was about celebrating Ian, how he had been. And so we had the Bowie tribute band and everyone was dancing, singing. And it was young people, there were a lot of young people there. And it was then that I really noticed how important it was. Because I just thought, so this is their impression. You know, maybe they've not been at a funeral before, maybe they don't know anything. And it's like, this is giving them a good idea of what it can be like. And it doesn't have to be everyone walking around crying. And it can be, we're celebrating him and we're celebrating all ourselves and how we're all how we all are together and that was what was so that was what I really realized from from that so then so that was my first foray into it and the start of the festival in a sense that was the festi first festival really yes yes but I mean what's been really interesting to me about the festival as it's evolved from from that to the first year and now to its and then to its second year is it's become much bigger than him hasn't it it's, it's, it's about um, something much broader and um, and also very much shaped by your own um, interest in, in, in Mexican culture. Now, I wonder if you could talk a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's not just Mexican culture. I'm really interested in how other cultures commemorate and celebrate death. And I think we have a terrible uh, uh, problem in Western culture that we just don't do that. We're, we, we have an inability to do it. And perhaps in the past, people people were better. Like there were doulas, there were that people did celebrate it better, and women uh, took charge of death and how death was engineered. But I think it's like Victorian times. Then it became more of a man's thing. It became about money, um, and then death became j just different. It's something we don't do. Western people don't die, but people in other cultures die, celebrate it, enjoy it. And it's, I mean, I think I, I have a bit of an issue with always uh, using Mexican imagery because I think it's a little bit of a cliche mm. and also you're stealing somebody else's thing. Uh, there are so many other cultures that uh, celebrate death and we, West, I, I think that Western culture really needs to learn from these and so I'm really interested in exploring that and in terms of the uh, festival mm. uh, embracing that more and using other cultures ideas and yeah it feels like there's huge potential in that isn't it mm -hmm. that it feels like you're really just getting started with this festival and I, I hope it will happen yeah. again and yeah well, should, we, should we just show a few pictures yes I think that was ahead. supposed to be all moving didn't yes. <laughs> so that's uh, that was the, the CCA the first festival and that's uh, replica of Ian's head which he did in I don't know a long long time ago when he was like 20 or something um, so this is so we made a film so I've got we've, we have merchandise this is the first <laughs> festival that's all folks badge and then the second one the um, oh this is a death is a art like everything which is a Sylvia Plath um, quote but I think it's like I think the whole thing about trying to do the festival was to make it fun 
to make it um, be able to engage everybody. So it's not, it shouldn't be high art. I mean, I think the sort of work that, that we do and the sort of work that Ian did, like this is his studio. That really is his studio. No, that is, this is Summer Hall. Uh, so this is last year. And this is a replica of his studio. So it's, he just used um, anything was art, really. So you can you just put everything together and anything is art. And it has it's not elitist, it's it's not high art. Everyone should be able to understand it. And I think that's how really we want the festival to be. So this is from uh, Festival of Ian Smith uh, 2015, which was here at the CCA. And this and so we had a death cabaret. Um, so it was it was mostly it was the anniversary of Ian's death. And it was like a three-day exhibition, and we had... And it was mostly about Ian, a celebration of him and his work, except on the Saturday night we had this massive, uh, like, five-hour-long death cabaret, and I invited different artists and different people to come and do, like, a short piece about death, either people who already had a piece or or were working on something. And this, and that was, that guy before was uh, Roger Ely. He came and did a piece on death. And he, well, he actually died by the end of that year because he was, he was suffering from cancer. But the piece that he did was amazing. And he, uh, he was then, in 2016, last year, then I invited um, (coughs) relatives or friends uh, to, to, uh, put a piece in a in a new exhibition, so they they, they two pieces each, um, of you know of their loved one, and then they wrote something about their loved one, and it was actually the writing. It was really great to have the person's work in there, obviously, uh, but it was what people wrote about their from a personal perspective, which was I thought was really interesting, and I think that's what I really find interesting. It's like you can use people's work that are other people's work as a linchpin for, for people to look at, but it's what, it's what their relatives and what other people are saying that seems really important to me, and allowing people to have more of a voice. I remember finding that part of the exhibition especially moving, but because it just evolved. I mean, I, I came to see it towards the end of the run, and by that time it had filled up. People, lots and lots of people had obviously visited and they'd written little tributes to people they'd lost and messages, and there was this, just this huge kind of shrine to all these different lives. It was very, very beautiful. Yeah, that was a different one. That was the Good Grief oh, exhibition. Sorry, so that was like, up, yes, so that was something that Ian had done in the past, and I just redid mm. it. So it was uh, like the idea of lampposts. So it had three lampposts with tributes that I had written to uh, different people that I've known that have died, and flowers, and you know the little mementos, with the idea that you're inviting other people to add their their mm. own tributes. And people did that. But the thing that I had was a book and I just put this because there was this at summer hall there was this like concrete altar so I just or it looked like an altar so I just turned it into an altar and uh, put this book there and people just wrote in it but what people really wrote in that book were things relating to suicide that was my mm-hmm. most uh, that, that was the thing that I felt most and really strong things and it was like it was amazing that book and I don't know what to do with the book Mm. And because I won't do anything with it, it's just I'll keep it. But in the but it really gave people the freedom to to write what they wanted. But yeah. in the future, I yeah. would really like to say to people, look, you can write in this book. But I'd really like to 
put it out there to people. But yeah, yeah it's how, how you do that, really. So You talked about Facebook earlier. I mean, one of the really interesting functions that social media has taken on is, is to provide a kind of book of condolences for, for, for people that, that the people's Facebook pages will remain open long after they, they died and they become something else. They become a, a place for people to go, a place of pilgrimage almost, to, uh, which is... Part I guess partly what um, afterwards is about to, to tell yeah, us about what it's exploring. So um, afterwards, um, it's in development at the moment, and we presented a scratch of the work. And um, I think the photographs are just like up on my desktop or whatever. I don't know. If right, there's okay. just a few of them. Um, Sorry, I'm showing my tech. <laughs> I think you need to do the three finger like swoosh up. Swoosh up. Okay, I'm going to swoosh up. That's my tech. No, did that not work? It's a four finger swoosh up. It's a four finger swoosh up. Oh, there we go. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, totally yeah. worked. So and then see if you right up the top. I'll come just as well to do it, am I? You know that way. I'm like as much as you all enjoy my comedy part. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, let me see. Is it here? Is it hiding? No, it's not. But I totally got it up. Here we go. Oh, hiya. Right, hello. Right, these are some photographs of a thing that once happened. Um, <laughs> like yeah. yeah, could you? Or actually, will I? How do we do this? Sorry, we're technically. Yeah, not, but it was supposed to be on a loop. There we go. <laughs> uh -huh. Right, Fabby. Um, so there's just like five photographs, so there's not there's not hunters for me to show you. So so this was the scratch of the work that we presented at Edinburgh International Science Festival for Scratch Night in September. And I've been collaborating as part of a kind of new emerging arts collective called Turn Arts mm -hmm. with an emerging director, Rosa Duncan, a writer, Jenny Knott, Kenneth McLeod, who is a designer, Felix Gein, who um, is a content creator, and then a, a range of different actors who, who came in and, and uh, took part in some devising workshops. Um, and that really informed the script writing process. Jenny then went away and wrote a script and then we, we developed it together and we presented that at the scratch. And so... Before I kind of go on to talk about exactly what the work is, um, because across the board we're all we're really interested in exploring how it is we work with one another to explore this subject matter, because we feel like it is so of from a personal point of view. Um, we all had an awful lot to say as soon as we went into the making process, but more often than not, we realised the minute people would ask us what it was we were creating with one another, the minute we'd say what happens to your Facebook profile when you die, the other person would talk for 10 minutes. Um, and so we were really keen that whatever our collaborative model was, the way that we worked with one another, how could we create a structure which would hold, give space to other people to explore their own experiences and opinions about the role that social media and technology now has within <coughs> death um, and, and the mourning ritual. And so, yeah, so these were our three actors that, that presented the work and we were exploring um, the role that, that technology has in this space as well. So how could the microphone, um, the stands and, and some of the projections that we had um, create a, a, a kind of different type of experience for our audiences? So it really started, the project itself started... Um, um, when Rosa Duncan had an experience of someone passing away on Facebook and it was someone that they, they didn't really know that well but the tributes were coming in thick and fast um, and she just thought about the communities of people that were coming together online to celebrate and to commemorate this person that had passed away but might not necessarily come in contact in the physical world, like what happens to those communities that are created or established online. 
and as much as we're all you know we may to different extents engage within um social media and different groups and, and, and different online dialogues um, and digital realities there's something very peculiar that happens or something quite interesting that happens when someone passes away on Facebook that, that you have on Facebook or on Instagram or Twitter or whatever and that it suddenly becomes a different type of public dialogue or public forum um, where people might come together and share stories at a wake or you know at the pub after the, the service now people will in groups and on profiles continue to post their memories and, and messages that they want to send towards that loved one and there was just loads of questions that we had about this that we've been exploring in the work so we've been exploring it in a kind of personal level and a societal level and then on a legislative level because there's something really interesting you know we will maybe only talk about what it's like do you know do we delete the, the facebook page do we monitor the posts do we moderate what happens in the facebook group because we don't know who should see x y and z and then furthermore there's also corporations that are that that have the capacity to benefit um from the way people are engaging with death online and so we were really interested in through the work exploring the many layers of it to hopefully create space for people to have a different type of conversation about about these ideas and so we were just thinking about questions as simple as why does it when someone passes away does someone who would normally direct message somebody their thoughts and feelings about them on facebook why does that suddenly then come on the public wall why like why does that happen what is it about the public <coughs> commemoration or the performance of commemorating an individual which feels important or feels like we've we're conditioned to do and then a step aside from that and i was mentioning this to you just before mm. we began talking we all, we might not necessarily oh that's my password page so <laughs> uh, that's my name if you just wanted to memorize <laughs> for a moment um i'm really glad you all laughed at that because that would have been really bad otherwise um but uh, yeah, I think that. So, if for example, if you were essentially when we participate and and we create online personas for ourselves, um, we're essentially creating online shrines for ourselves. By twenty sixty, there's going to be more dead people on Facebook than alive. It's essentially a digital graveyard. Um, and what does that actually mean, really? What does that mean genuinely um, to us and how that information is stored online and also who then has ownership over that information? Um, and potentially having a conversation and a dialogue about these things, these logistical, practical things, at this point, when we're becoming so aware of how it plays a part of the grieving ritual and process, we might be able to understand our emotional responses to it when we are then placed in that situation at some point in life. Um, you know, so what happens if, for example, you, um, your best pal uh, didn't tell you that, you know, she's actually been dating your brother and then she passes away and your brother starts posting all this stuff on the Facebook page and you're like, how do I deal with this bonkers thing that's happening? And of course, this is a, this is a, potentially a, a ridiculous example or whatnot. But what I'm trying to make point of is that where we might, Suddenly we then, through Facebook, are showing a different side to this person that we might not have had the experience of um, in our day-to-day -day lives. And what does it mean that this is online? You know, we communicate with one another so much through technology now that our sense of intimacy and interpersonal relationship is, has, has shifted. Suddenly we get that satisfaction from communicating 
when you would see someone's face and, and you would light up in the street, ah, oh, it's nice to see you. Suddenly we get that when we get a text message on our phones and it's the bright lights flashing which gives us a signal that we should feel a sense of intimacy or, or, or connection to something. And so what happens then when when this person who we have loved and who is no longer with us is represented online in, an, in a form of media of some sort and we can still connect to them and it's still they still exist in some capacity and and that's everyone will have a different relationship to what that means or what it represents and what it means and represents will be different across the board depending on circumstance perspective relationship to the loved one relationship to the community of people that you're a part of who is who are, who are reaching out to that, that person that's online. But the only thing that I'll add in, just to kind of round up um, what I'm saying just now is, in our process of creating afterwards and exploring all of these questions, we realised that there are some people that are making monetary gain through um, acknowledgement that people are desperate to hold on to a sense of a loved one online and through technology. I don't know if you're aware of it, but there are websites where you can watch corpses decomposing um, in their coffins online. Now, it's happening now. You can sign up to this service. There are also websites. So that would be you sign up whilst alive to say, I want a camera in my coffin. Yeah, and you could also so right now I'll Google it and find someone decomposing and watch it online. Ah, right, okay. This is happening, you know, and then. There are also, um, for example, there are sites online where you can, this is what it is that we're now really exploring with the legislative work, with the narrative that we're exploring through the performance afterwards, is um, there are websites which exist that you can sign up so that all of the social media platforms, any internet action that you as an individual have had online, you can sign up to these websites which will gather all of that data your Facebook, your Twitter, your Tumblr, your Instagram, your LinkedIn, your Amazon, everything you've ever bought. And they will gather all of this information with what information you've submitted and they'll create an online persona replica of you. And the thing that's interesting as, a, as an extension of that is that some of these contracts um, and websites, these services, you A, have to pay for them, but B, you no longer own it. Once you sign and, tra and create this transfer, this, this corporation, this institution, will then own the information which is of you because you've signed it off to them. And what's really interesting is that there is a clause in some of these contracts where they are exploring if we ever get the technology to artificially inseminate memory into a, an, into a conscious being and create a clone of you, we can do it and you have no rights to that being. And so there's a really interesting thing happening whereby this is happening right now, this is not sci-fi. Um, th through the work that we're creating, we're exploring our relationship to just on a very simple level, what happens when someone dies? How do we process it? Do we feel comfortable putting a status up to let people know? Because it's the simplest way to communicate to a large group of people. But then by extension, what does it mean as part of our communities? How we engage with the ritual of grieving? Do we still feel that level of intimacy? Can we still process it if we still have the satisfaction from reaching out to that person? And then furthermore, how is society responding to what our lives now are the fact, with the fact that we, we live in a handheld device society? Um, and so there's many layers to what it is that we're exploring. 
and we've been really keen to just be as thorough with our research as possible and to really question what it is that we as a kind of performance making collective are engaging in or putting out there because we're aware technology is a really trendy thing within performance and theatre right now it's all over the place um, like the show that's on at the Trav um, recently or just now I can't remember if it's ended or not and it's, it's there but when it comes to the, the world of death actually it's just with it, with it, it being, you know, there are vo everyone has a voice with technology. And so with the medium of performance, how can we think about what it is that we are giving voice to? And what do we give space to, to, to allow people to come in contact with these conversations, to maybe learn a little bit more about what their relationship might be to media and what, and what that does, what their relationship to media does for other people. And, um, yeah, it's been a, 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 a footering process of, of a lot of research and a lot of thinking and a lot of pints and coffee chewing over questions that none of us have the answers to. Um, but yeah. can I just say, I think that it's really obvious that we all have to take responsibility for our own deaths mm -hmm. and we have to start thinking about it now because when, when we're in... In, a, in sound mind, sound body, it's not morbid, it's not scary, we should, we should not be scared of death and then we can, we can make it better for everybody else. Mm. We're not going to get into those, because that sounds horrendous, mm. some of those situations that you could get into and it's like if we take control of our death, you know, that's, that's what we need to do. We need to do that for our relatives, we need to do that for our friends. We need to do it for ourselves. And I think what's, well, I think you're right, and I think what's interesting about that is o over a number of years there's been a real medicalisation of death, I think, generally, which touches on your thing about the distance that we now have with it now. X amount of years ago in Scotland, people would have cleaned the body of their own family members and they would have had a real connection with, with, with death in that sense, whereas now it's someone else does it. And actually the process of dying has become quite medicalised as well. So mm. there's a process of dying that's medicalised, death has become medicalised. And I think I'm a real um, supporter of encouraging discussions about death because actually it, take, it, it reclaims <laughs> some of that and I mm. think it's really mm. important for us to reclaim some of that as a society because mm. I think if... We don't want to go down that route. And I think one of the things that I'm really keen on is, is um, encouraging not just discussions about um, death and dying, but also about grief and about you know, those that are left behind and how we, we can support those that are left behind. But I'm aware that I'm also really keen that through promoting that, what we don't promote is a pathologising grief. Because that would be the, the the extreme of that, which I think could also happen about this kind of pathology of grief. Grief it means that you have to definitely go and see someone about that, rather than as a community and as an individual kind of managing that and recognising that actually grief is a absolutely natural response to a, a sad situation and a, a difficult situation. So there's there's real interesting parts to it, I think. But I do think there is something about us reclaiming and and absolutely starting to see the cycle of. Of life in its entirety, I think mm. you know, we, ha we have to see, we have to see it in that that sense. I picked up a book this morning. It was when I was getting dressed in my bookshelf, and it was the Tibetan book of living and dying. And I was just like, oh, I'm just going to have a look, see if it's got a little message for me. And it <laughs> said, um, it said, uh, you will never like you have to understand death and be totally cool with that. I mean, it didn't say it in those languages. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, before you can really appreciate living. 
And it's like, yeah, of course. And it's the total Buddhist sensibility. Everything, as soon as something's born, it's, it's already dying. And there's nothing wrong with that. And it's like, other cultures do believe this. And we, mm. we just, we, we will live better if we're not afraid of death. That's, mm. that's basically what this book was saying. And it's like, fear is what's restricting us. We, we, you know, we shouldn't be fearful. So do you think part of what, part of this being cut off from the death process is about is the way as a society we're cut off from lots of different things we you know we're disconnected from the food that we eat and from mm -hmm. the things mm -hmm. that are made around us you know we, we we don't know as a culture a lot of the time how to build things how to cook things and i'm wondering if there's the, there's there's a connection there that that the death has become something for like someone else to do with all yeah i, I, I think it is i think so i think so and i think like for me what just when you were talking earlier just there and I was I was thinking about my gran <laughs> and I was thinking about the fact that she's a total control freak so she would be she's still with us so when I say she was I just mean we don't have Christmas dinner with her anymore I'm not meaning that she's passed away um, so she was the woman that would like make sure that she'd have all the veg ready on the hob all ready to go on Christmas Eve like ready to go and in, in terms of it, death not being estranged from her, she's such a control freak that she's already planned the funeral to the point that at the, the family get-together at Christmas there, she was like, right, I'm all, I just want to let you all know because you're all gathered here. I've pretty much got it sorted because I want to make sure that it's the way that I want it to be. And actually, the only thing I need to do is I'm going to pinch a hymn book from the church next week so I can have a look because I just need to find one more song for you all to sing. <laughs> and I just thought that was absolutely hilarious. It's just because she is such a... It sounds awful, a controlling woman, but she is really clear about what her interests are and how she wants things to be run. That that her death is no no is not isn't dissimilar to that, and mm -hmm. it's a part of who she is. And of course, she wants to pass that down to us. And and because of that, we can all have conversations about her and, and our health and our family and her well-being in a really frank way about well, what would make her happier? What can we do? And it's all very practical and it's really really clear. And but there was an accident last week and. And I've got a family WhatsApp and suddenly everyone is like, right, so who's going to see the matriarch today? Who's taking her out for dinner? Who's getting the show? And it's just very, very practical because mm -hmm. we just know that, well, we don't know what's going to happen. So how do we deal with it? And it's, But it's because she's taken ownership of it in that capacity mm -hmm. that we as our family and even people that I think don't necessarily talk about their feelings that much are able to respond and, and meet her with where she's at and what her needs are mm -hmm. at this time. And I think it's given us all a healthier way to communicate her well-being at this time while well, she's with us. I, I think, I, I do think it's about that. I do think it is that distance thing. I think it's probably other things to it, but I do think there is... And I think largely that's about our disconnect with nature and nature in its broadest sense. And I do think it's about that thing about life cycle and, as, and animals is a good example of that, about now the, the life cycle of an animal. We're quite removed from that now. But I also think there are other changes in society that has um, distanced us from our thinkings about death. I think there's a secularisation that has probably um, added into that. I think about my, my own family's experience of death. And we, I grew up, and a very large Catholic family where death was talked about all the time, actually. <laughs> actually, it was spoken about a lot. And I mean, I was an, as a nine-year-old child, that was my first experience of death, which was my nana. And my nana was in our house for three days and we were all in and out the room. Oh, nana's there! And I mean, that's quite an unusual experience now. Um, but I've been around quite a lot of dead bodies because that's what my family do. They have them in the house and we're in and out the room. And it's like, but, but I think that experience will be getting I, my children won't have that experience. I, I, I'm not a practicing Catholic. No, they wouldn't have that experience anymore. So I think there's something about distance from nature, something about secularization. 
And I do wonder around death whether there's also something, and I, I'm not sure what I think, but I, I think it's worth saying, whether the whole discussion that we have about death is also tainted about what we think about older people and the value that older people have in society. Because I think there has been a kind of culture of youth and, and, a real pre and, and I think that's got something in it too about the fact what value do we put on older people, what value do we then put on their death. I think that's an interesting aspect yeah. to it as well. And there's a, just a wee flip side off the back of that, sorry Andrew, it was just to say um, that thinking about even just how we approach conversations about mental health actually and about yeah. ill mental health there's such a taboo of talking about death and because like that's arguably you know the 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 the, the end thing that we don't want to talk about when we're talking about depression or or, mm. or or any sort of suffering relating to mental health because death is the thing we don't want to talk about it means that we don't want to talk about mental health in general because it is it's just so closely linked to that mm. and actually by putting it in a box all the way in the corner over there and not chatting about it um it, it, it just ostracises people even more so mm. and so that they don't know how to communicate what it is that their wants and wishes are for their life while they're with us um, and I think that that's a really unfortunate byproduct of our unhealthy relationship with death, full stop. I'd really like to bring in other voices from the room and anyone would like to share their experiences or ask a question? Jenny? Yeah, um, I'm interested in the way in which um, people use their creativity mm -hmm. to sort of describe the culmination of their lives, particularly if they have some forewarning of their death. You think of some of the great works that we celebrate, some four last songs, or people wanting to finish their novel, or um, at a more everyday level, um, do we get somebody to write our biography and our life story and bring the pictures of ourselves that we like into that? And um, you know, how satisfying that can be and why we sort of feel driven to do that. Um, you know, my personal sense is that's a good thing that we try and do. But also where that's taking us in this age where we've got new new um, technological ways of doing that. For example, you were talking about Facebook, but now we've got um, virtual avatars and um, you know virtual reality and so on. How can that um, actually help us overcome that transitions coming and then um, other people deal with it. So, you know, I've had an experience of a friend that I've known only online in a virtual world who died and gave, uh, got messages from her family and Facebook and then everybody gathered together but her daughter inhabited her avatar and that was really strange but we had a really great group um, ceremony around her. Um, so you get this, <laughs> it offers n new ways in which people approach this experience and then um, we try and hang on to things in the way that the Victorians tried to hang on through um, spiritualism mm. and so on. Could they still reach people? Thank you. Um, anyone else? I think there's something, sorry if it's a bit anecdotal because I'm still piecing it together in my head, but there was a comment made this morning about um, the the notion of being a grown-up has changed, um, mm. especially for my generation, the kind of benchmarks of being a grown-up. Um, and I had a, an experience just in the past two years where it was a big shock to my family that I didn't have a will, <laughs> and this was a big deal, and, and I think it comes from the fact that don't make a will till you have a mortgage and that used to be the benchmark of being a grown-up and 
anyone of my generation I then phoned rang was all like, what a will? Oh, no, when do you make a will? No one ever tells you to do that. Um, but especially for me, I knew almost all of my great grandparents. By the age of 10, I was like a funeral pro. Like, I mean, <laughs> yeah. writing to all of it, sandwiches, good chat, seeing everyone, um, which I know isn't the thing you're meant to say about a funeral, but as a kid, it was always like, Whoa. <laughs> great, great time. Should be there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and my sister writes wills. She's a solicitor, so I'm surrounded by all of these things. And then, so I didn't have a will. It was a bit like, kind of failed the family. What are you, what's going on? Um, and it felt like a very complicated situation to then engage with, with my peers to say, well, why do we not do this anymore? And why are we not forced to have that conversation about what happens mm. when we pass away? And then the bigger realization for me came from the fact that I felt like no one really knew me and my family. When we started to have that conversation of what would happen if I died, and I presented what I would like to happen, and was met with um, quite conflicting opinions, and then having to deal with the fact that my relatives would be upset if I chose to do that, after I died and then going, hang on a minute, so I meant to get buried, so you're not really sad. So you have somewhere to go when blah. And all of these kind of things. And it just, it made me wonder if there's also a generational thing where we don't stop to see how we celebrate ourselves. We don't stop to recognise what we would like to have and acknowledge what those things could be, but also the notion that I had to plan my own funeral and to sit back and go, I've never thought what song sums me up. I've genuinely never thought about it, ever. Um, because I live in a product-driven world where once you do the thing you don't celebrate, you should be thinking about the next thing before you've finished. And I wonder how all these things tie together and how we go into a group of five-year-olds and go, you're going to write your will. Although right I tell you, what is interesting is that I have more conversations with my children than I have had with anyone else. Children love talking about death. Yeah. Children like to, weirdly oh. enough, children actually, it, now they're getting their heads around that, you know, and actually children are who you have some of the most open and frank discussions about death with. It's when adults, it's when we become adults that we start to become, and I don't know whether that's about our closeness to it or whatnot, but I think there is something about that. That was my thought, I suppose, because with the church perhaps would have had that role in yeah. the, the dealing with death thing, that doesn't really exist anymore, mm. and so social media seems to be taking that role to a certain extent, but I wonder if going forward education might yeah. end up playing a part in bringing that back into the way we all live our lives, which is thinking about death and whether that would be a role or whether it would just be a societal thing, a social media thing. And I don't know, I think that's quite an interesting thing to think about as well, that what happens with children at school. And well, it's interesting, the Scottish government strategy around palliative and end-of-life care, they, they have as a commitment about encouraging greater discourse around death and dying in society, in society generally. And it's in, But there's no, they don't really give much specifics on how that should be done other than um, thinking through how it can be engaged more with through education yeah. and also funnily enough through the creative arts. So th they're there two mm. kind of potential solutions to how we encourage that. There was, oh, there was several people now. <laughs> 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 um, the late lady at the back I think was, was first, yeah. Uh, I'm from Mexico so I grew up in the culture that you were talking about so I just felt the need to make some uh, Precisions talking about the celebration of death in Mexico, you have to think about before the Spanish and after the Spanish. Before the Spanish, death could be a matter of honor if you were chosen, chosen to be sacrificed. 
So what that means also has an impact on how we deal with it. So if it is something good, it's something to be celebrated. After the Spanish, it became the Catholic thing. Um, and if it is the will of God, then people don't suffer that much because to some extent that was somebody else's decision. So that helps people cope. Uh, the religious element that Julie mm. was talking about, that also brings another dimension uh, to the way in which we discuss death because there is some comfort for many people yeah. in many different religions, not only in Catholicism. And the third one, the third thing I wanted to share is one thing that I still do up to the present day, is uh, putting an altar every November, the first and the second. And just like this festival, it's a way to celebrate every year, to remember every year someone that has passed. And it's a very easy thing to do. You just need a picture, some water, some flowers, and the things that person used to like. And in that way, that person is never totally gone because you remember them every year for the things they like. So it doesn't need to be a one-off. It can be every year. And that is a mix between the indigenous and the Spanish traditions that uh, I think many Mexicans still do it in Mexico, and those Mexicans abroad still do it in Glasgow. Yeah, the first year that Ian died, then we did go to the great. We had a party at home, made uh, biscuit skulls. Everyone decorated them. Then we went up to the grave, put some uh, the Mexican, you know, your paper, the paper flags, put that all round, left it there for like the weekend, and had drinks up there and had a little party. The altar can be at home. Yeah, yeah, we had the altar in at home as well. So, yeah, it was. It's good to commemorate. It feels good. It helps you, I think. There was a lady with a hand up to say. Oh, uh, yes, Sandra. <laughs> <laughs> Just wanted to comment on um, something you said, Angie, and also Julie. Um, uh, I think it's fantastic that you raised the preparation for death. I think it's really, really important, and I know. Um, just in my own experience, when my little brother was diagnosed with cancer and the doctor said you've got 12 months, um, it was a really interesting experience of watching my mum go through that with him and kind of work through all the things that he needed to think about and do. And rather than it being incredibly traumatic for all of us, it became a quite beautiful experience of um, supporting him to prepare. Um, and part of that preparation, which came into what Julie was saying, is because we were raised Muslim, um, the bodies are washed, and it's still to this day. So I recently went to a funeral of a friend of mine here in Glasgow. We you know, have a big Asian community here, and, and um, you know all the young people are expected to, to wash the bodies of the same gender. And so for my brother, he also had to articulate, you know, who, who you want to wash your body, because you, it depends on you can request certain people to come in and wash the body. And so, again, that added that intimacy uh, of selecting who was going to wash his body when he, when he passed. Yeah. I think it's really good for the for mourners to have to do physical things as well with, with people. So washing or digging. You know, like We um, threw earth into the grave. Uh, Things like that, because you feel like you're part of that whole process, and it's really good. It's it's not so clinical, and I think that's really important. So, oh, sorry, I think he was. I think he was first actually. <laughs> yeah, um, I was really liking the whole celebration thing, and I think it's only 
I think I realised in my I've had like a lot of lot of loss and a lot of grief and and found it quite diff difficult to kind of sort of remember. Sometimes I can remember uh, in my life nicely, like oh, there's something that you know it could be just like a colour. Because my um, my adopted mum, she was really into mauve, and I was just like oh, just reminds me of her. You know, there's things that like that that become really beautiful, but that kind of celebration thing feels really kind of I don't know if it's kind of too linked to painful. But I I, when I was thinking about it. Um, when I grew up, I lost my um, birth mum uh, through uh, suicide when I was really, really young. So I didn't really have much concept of her. And then death was always such a big secret, like for years, years, years. And then I, like in my older life, I've experienced a lot of death, like with friends committing suicide, with um, both my mum and dad dying of cancer, like adopted parents. But with my mum and dad's thing, because I, that was gradual and I was like in that process and talking to them and stuff, um, especially when my mum's death, it was really like talking about her anxieties and fears and everything about it. It was really, really like, nice. I know it sounds quite strange, but um, and it got me so much more familiar with death. So like my granddad's quite ill now. He's going through that process, and it's just really quite natural. You know, there's something about that kind of evolution, and I think something about that education is such an important thing. And if we started that young, how beautiful it would be. How we could look at death in a different way. So I find it. Now I, I, I do have a different way with it, and it doesn't it doesn't scare me as much. And it's still I, I, I think there's still a lot of um, pain for. I still I still need to I think I need to learn from you about your celebration of death because I feel, I think I've I've not really had that teaching. So there's something about this this education that we need to teach, whether it's around death or and and celebration and stuff that need to be really in there. I think the, the points that you've brought up have been really great and also the social media stuff and I'm sorry because I interrupted a bit when you were talking about it but it reminded me of that episode of Black Mirror which was all about like what you were talking about that's just happening I was just like oh my god that's that's so crazy and scary but like yeah I mean it's really some really interesting points have been brought up and uh yeah, it's nice to kind of hear, like, because uh, there's so many sides of it, isn't there? Mm, yeah. yeah, so just Absolutely. kind of really connected with that. Yeah. We'll need to wrap up in, in, in a moment, but, but to any of you, Panda. Ah, well, uh, let me just try to run through this. Uh, quite a few things. Um, I'll just share the sort of the, the death experience in, from, from my family tradition. Um, so I, I just. I guess uh, leading up to death, I think the, the, the issue with age, I, I grew up in a different um, uh, environment where aging is, 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 a, is a something that is welcomed. Mm -hmm. I think if you look at um, the cosmetics industry, I think about 20% of people who use anti-wrinkle cream are actually people who are <laughs> in their 20s, I think, there's something like that. So I think this, the, the, the attitude to aging has a lot to play uh, in, in how we think about you know the end stage of our life but death is a, is, a, is a paradox because we know it's coming but it always shocks us when it comes yeah so there's something important about having um, something for everybody to do like roles for people to do and knowing how I think because the, the most difficult thing we don't know how to to talk to people who've lost someone um, mm -hmm. we don't know how to act around each other, so if somebody has something to do. So in my experience of that, if, if you went to a Zimbabwean funeral, you would actually only find out that it's a funeral after talking to people, because <laughs> it seems like it's a party. 
when you arrive there. And um, <laughs> yeah, because you know people are singing and drinking and. But lots of the idea of performance. So um, I think back to, I just finished on this little story because there's, there's always lots to say. But I, I remember um, I was about eight, I think, and one of my great uncles had passed away, and um, I was really shocked because two of his friends turned up, and they were so they burst into the house and said, "Oh, I'm glad he's gone. I, I can get that jacket. I've always wanted that." <laughs> <laughs> The other one is rummaging through the living room. Oh, where is that Parker pen? I've always wanted it. And so, so they do this whole kind of comedy. As a young person, I didn't realize that's what they were doing. But <laughs> there, are, there are so many ways of uh, of dealing with it, and and I think your response is amazing. Of. Uh, doing something mischievous. Yeah, and I think laughter is really important yeah, and people yeah, yeah. do need that because it's horrible, it's yeah. bloody horrible. Yeah. But yeah. if you can laugh and if you can take the joy out from it, then it's really good and you connect with everybody else. That's that's really what's important, isn't it? I was watching that Billy Colony um, documentary or something yeah. the other night and he, he was about that as well. I was talking about his Parkinson's and how he like, Puts it in his show, and it's just like so funny. Hand in the pockets, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he like puts that shake rattle and roll. Off. Like, as soon as he comes on stage, it's like it's just so beautiful. You know? It's just like to kind of bring that into life, and it's like yeah, we can make a bit light of it and just like meet it in a different way, and it doesn't have to be like oh god, I really yeah. missed because it isn't all that. It's like you say, there's so much more to that experience of the of of loss. Yeah. yeah, and if you cut through some of that rubbish, like say, for example, with the Parkinson thing, if he says it himself, if he takes the Mickey out of that, then no one else is afraid, are they? Yeah, Everybody yeah, else yeah. can address it. Yeah. So that well, I was just going to say it's, it's always the way. Just as things is really starting to get interesting, it, it, we, we have to stop, which is rather like life itself, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, I, hope this, I hope this conversation will continue amongst yourselves.